Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Benjamin. That was a blessing to, to worship, to pray together. I love that one line. Let Jesus solve your problems as you come to him in prayer. I want to thank everybody for their participation. I actually know a personal story of someone who received one of these boxes in Moldova in an orphanage and ended up coming to Cairn and living with one of the families from our church. So the Lord is, is working, and we're grateful for that. Also, if you're visiting with us, I want to welcome you. We have plenty of extra Bibles if you don't have a Bible. If you have one, if you'll turn to James chapter 4. Two quick announcements. First of all, we have the Advent wreath making coming up later this month. There are two, two hours that we're doing at 6.30 and 7.30. The 6.30 is full now, so if you want to come at 7.30, bring your children or grandchildren just to um, encourage our kids and getting them focused on the coming of, of Christ at Christmas and rehearsing the great predictions about Christ's birth, his death, and resurrection. So, in addition, though, the Bible says that we should give honor to those whom honor is due. This is Veterans Day weekend, and we live in a country that we're blessed to have freedoms because of many people who have been willing to serve in our military. And so I think it's appropriate. Some of you have lost loved ones because they bravely gave their lives as veterans, and we have some veterans here this morning. So I'd like to ask all of our veterans, if you're here this morning, we want to honor you and thank you. So after they stand, let's give them a round of applause. If you're a veteran, would you please stand? Thank you. Sincerely, thank you. Well, this morning we're looking in the book of James. We're looking at a series called the the litmus test of faith. We're, we're trying to discover what does real faith look like? Am I really a Christian? And how's it going to show up? And lately we've been looking at a series of passages that talk about relationships. It's easy to say, oh, I know the Bible, or I go to church, or I have my devotions. But then James says, let's take a look at your relationships. And so some of the themes that we've seen, that if my faith is genuine, it's going to show up in how I treat other people. So he talked about the sins of the tongue, those sins of speech that we need to, to correct. And then he talked about what it looks like to really have true wisdom. We can think ourselves to be very wise, he says, but if you're not reasonable and gentle and gracious, so that's not wisdom from God. And then last week, James really called us on the carpet when he said, you know, if you have relational conflict, and probably the place that shows up the most is at home, Right? but at work or even in churches. If you have relational conflict, what's the cause of that? It's your selfishness that's waging war in your members. And, and he renounced that and, and called us back to repentance and submission to God. He said, that's friendship with the world. If you can't get along with people. And so it was a very strong passage. In fact, one of the things that I found interesting was how many people said, wow, that, that really spoke to me. But you know what? It's one thing to have a passage speak to us. It's another thing to go, well, what difference has it made? How many of us went home and, as James said, mourn and weep and repent and change? I led a man to Christ 
years ago that was attending church here, and his wife, who wasn't a believer, asked if we could meet, the three of us. And I asked her, I said, um, have you seen a difference in how he treats you now that he's a Christian? And she said, no, actually, he's worse. And he agreed. And I thought to myself, wow, we're missing a big picture here. The Bible calls us as sinners to repentance. Jesus does the transforming. But as you know, our mission here, we, we believe that the Bible teaches our goal is to advance the gospel, to let people know that we are sinners and that without Christ, we're going to hell. But Christ came into this world to save sinners. And when we repent and believe in him, that we are forgiven. But then we become disciples. Now we're being followers who are being transformed. And so James is, is helping us with that process. It's God's word that transforms us. So all of us, including me, I need to hear the Bible this morning, but for different reasons. Some of us need to be comforted because you're wounded, you're weak, you're struggling, and you have a contrite heart. You know you're a sinner. You're trying to change. Some of us need to be rebuked because we're proud and indifferent. We're deceitful or we're, we're just, just not giving God much of our time. Some need to be equipped and encouraged. You're in pain. You're going through struggles. But God's word is our comfort. It's our strength. And so let's pray together, and then we're going to look at our passage this morning. Lord, thank you so much that your word is part of our relationship with you. It's a vital part. You said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And you called us as pastors to feed your flock, to shepherd them, to teach the word of God to them. And I stand, Lord, with reverence before you, asking that you will help me to apply your word to my life and to realize the areas that I need to humble myself and change. Thank you for the gospel. There's always hope when Jesus is at the center. So we ask for him to be honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're going to look at it. Two passages in the same section, we're going to kind of wind down the last thing about relationships that James is going to say at this point, and then he's going to transition to talk about money and looking at life in terms of our relationship to eternity, a proper perspective on our time. So I think the theme, I'm not sure why that just went to music, let me try that again. Um, if we can just reboot, there we go. I think the theme that we'll start with is this, is that true faith, we're going to find this morning, avoids two things. One, self-inflated, and second, self-sufficient activity. Now, as we're looking in James, what I mean by a self-inflated activity is James is going to talk about judging other people. That's another relational struggle that we all have to deal with. And then he's going to talk about a self-sufficient activity that says, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do, just leaves God out of the picture. So let's start with verses 11 and 12. Make sure this is working. Here we're going to find that true faith, if you're really a Christian, James is saying, look, true faith is going to avoid or it's going to correct a judgmental, self-inflated activity. And what I mean by self-inflated is that we've suddenly sort of taken the role of God in other people's lives, as though there was an opening in the Trinity. It's now going to be a quadrinity, and we're going to tell other people how they need to behave. So let's look at verse 11. James says, Don't speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... 
you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge of it. And then look at this. There's only one lawgiver and judge. And I, I, I see in parentheses, and it's not you, Tom. And you can fill your name in. It's not you. There's only one who's the judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. So he asks us this pressing question. Who are you who judge your neighbor? So to kind of recap this section, there, there were problems in this church. James wasn't just making something up. This church had a bitterness, a selfishness. There were quarrels and disputes. And, and people were not restraining themselves from how they spoke to one another in the church. They were perhaps pronouncing curses on one another. And James says, look, that's sinful worldly conduct. You need to stop that. You need to humble yourself before God. But just before he leaves this subject, he thinks about this idea of judging other people. So, so this, this idea of speaking evil. He goes, don't speak against one another. And, and it makes sense. When you disagree with somebody or you have a conflict, sometimes you speak angrily to them. But then naturally, the next step is to start speaking about them and against them. We start to tell other people how bad they are. The word itself means to speak degradingly, to defame people, to slander them, to go, hey, you know what they said? You know, you know what they did? Back in Leviticus 19, 16, in the Mosaic Law, it said, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And so he says, if you do that, what you're doing is making an arrogant presumption. You are inflating yourself to the role of God. And we've all done that. But it's really important that as Christians, we understand what the Bible teaches about judging people. Because believe it or not, there actually is a right kind of judging and a wrong kind of judging. You're like, really? Yeah. Let's start with the right kind of judging. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if you are aware that your brother has sinned, you go to them in private. You don't go talking about them. You go to them and you appeal to them to repent. If they don't repent, he says, then you bring two or three with you. If they still refuse to repent, then he said, then you tell it to the, to the assembly and if they still refuse to repent, then he said, then you expel them, you, you excommunicate them, you let them be as an as a unbeliever. So there was a process in the first century. If a Christian, someone who called himself a believer, was flagrantly and deliberately just doing something blatantly sinful, there were steps to take. And that's called judging. And I'm going to show you why I say that. So that's appropriate. That's biblical judging. Paul gave us an example of this in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church prided themselves on being a very loving church, which is a good thing to be a very loving church. But he said, I heard that in your church, you have a man that's having an incestual relationship with his mother or stepmother. And he says, instead of mourning over that sin, you have become puffed up and inflated, like you're proud of how loving you are. So this is what he told them to do, and he actually calls it judging, and he says, I want you to do this kind of judging. And, and I would encourage you to write this passage down, 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. He said, I wrote to you, Corinthians, not to associate with anyone who calls themselves a brother. 
So this is not unbelievers, but people who say, oh yeah, I'm a born-again Christian. Don't associate with them if they are immoral, covetous, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, or swindlers. So he's assuming that the steps have been taken and this person won't repent. So he says, don't even eat with them. So this is the last stage. Expel them from your fellowship. This is a good thing because bad company corrupts good morals. It's not because we're better than them, but, but because God's called us to holiness in the fellowship. So he goes, what do we have to do with judging outsiders? Those are unbelievers. Do we not judge those who are within the church? And, and, and the rhetorical answer is yes. Those who are outside, God judges. So he says, remove the wicked man from your midst. So a lot of people don't like that. They're like, nobody could tell me what to do. And it's like, that's the point. If we're Christians, we're to be under the accountability of, of a church and its leaders. And, and it's actually a loving thing to try to bring people back when they're in sin and, and, and lacking repentance. So that's biblical judging. But then there's a wrong kind of judging. And Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 7. He said, don't judge lest you be judged. But I want to suggest that too many people misunderstand that verse and they use that as their deflection when they're in blatant sin, right? So you come to someone who's in blatant sin and you say, hey, you know, I want to talk to you about this. Don't judge, man. You're going, okay, what did Jesus mean when he said don't judge? Well, first of all, I think in the context, what he meant was why would you go to someone else about their blatant sin when you haven't dealt with your own blatant sin. Because he didn't just say, don't judge us, you'll be judged. Stop. He said, he goes, why would you find a speck in your brother's eye if you've got a log in your eye? But he still didn't stop. He said, so here's what to do. Get the log out of your eye. So repent of your own blatant sin. And then he said, and then go to your brother. So if I have some blatant sin that people have pointed out and I refuse to repent of it, how dare I go to someone else and say, hey, you need to work on this or I want to talk to you about this. That's inappropriate judging. Be like me saying, hey, you know, um, you need to watch how you talk. You, you really have angry and foul speech. And they go, well, Pastor Tom, um, I've seen you drunk three times now. You need to deal with that. And I'm like, well, that's different. No, it's not different. So that's inappropriate judging. There's another type of inappropriate judging that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 4. The Corinthians had formed opinions about Paul that he's not really an apostle. He's a poser. And, and he's not who he thinks he is. And I know why he does this stuff. He's just trying to get your money. So this is a good verse to think about. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, don't go on passing judgment on other Christians. Wait till God comes and he will bring to light things hidden in the darkness, and he will disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come from God. So in other words, when I start saying, I know why he did that, they were singing up there on the stage because they just wanted to show off their voice, right? Oh, I'll bet you they're not so hot. I'll bet when we start telling people, we know why you did this, and, and you're, Paul says, stop that. Don't judge one another's motives. Don't, don't sit around trying to figure out, oh, you know, you might come to me and say, oh, Pastor Tom, you're so wonderful, you're so, you, you don't know, what if I'm having an affair, right? 
I'm not. God is my witness. But Paul says one day God will bring to light the things that are in secret. And he will reveal that dark. And and so I want to say to you, if you do have a double life, you know, you come and you act all Christian-y, but during the week you know you're blatantly sinning, we might not see that, but God does. But our job is not to, to just assume, oh, I know they're just a hypocrite. I know that they have motives. Paul says, don't do that kind of judging. And then in Romans 14, he addressed another type of inappropriate judging. There are a lot of things in Scripture that are neither right or wrong per se. In other words, we call these gray areas. These are matters of conscience. There's no question that lying is a sin. Immorality is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. Adultery is a sin. But can a Christian have a, a drink of alcohol? Can a Christian listen to different types of music? Can a Christian dance? Can a Christian wear makeup? When we begin to take our own personal convictions and then look at others and say, they're a bad Christian because they're not doing it the way I think they should, Paul calls that out as sin in the book of Romans. You see, in the early church, as it was first forming, there were little communities of churches in Rome, and some of them were predominantly Jewish believers in a little house church. And so, consequently, those Jewish believers were still keeping the the dietary laws. They're like, you can't eat. You can't eat pork. That's forbidden. And the Gentiles are like, that's silly. Don't worry about that. You can eat. Jesus pronounced all foods clean. So Paul starts Romans 14 and he goes, stop despising another person's conviction. Stop holding them in contempt. Stop judging them. He said, let them stand before the Lord. And so he wrote this in Romans 14. Why do you judge your brother? And why do you regard your brother with contempt? So if people do things differently from how you do it, oh, I can't believe they send their kids to public school, right? Or, oh, they're so legalistic. Those homeschool people are so legalistic. When we start having these judgmental spirits about how people have different convictions on gray areas, Paul says, stop it. He says, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let's not judge one another anymore. So what James is talking about is inappropriate sinful judging where I'm calling out people for their motives or I'm not dealing with my own sin or or they're not doing it my way. He goes, stop doing that. He goes, you're not God. And so that's why I've called this a self-inflated activity. Now, fortunately, none of us does this, but the problem is we're going to meet people that do, right? And, And we need to talk to them. Hey, we all can do this. We can do it with our spouses, with our kids. And James is going, look, you need to worry about your own obedience to God. You're not a judge of the law. You should be doing what God says. The real test and measure of my Christianity is my application of the Bible to my life and my admission when I fail and my repentance, not telling everybody else how bad they are. But now James is going to turn the corner and he wants to talk about a proper perspective on life and finances. And, he, and he's going to talk about planning here. And really, when you think about it, planning's a good thing, right? I mean, some of you are planning out your retirement. At Karen, where I teach, we have a business major. You put together a business plan, right? I mean, a, a failure to plan, someone once said, is, is, is you might as well plan to fail. So when you first look at this next passage, it sounds like, wow, I don't, I don't see the problem here. Look at verse 13. 
James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now, left out of context, I'd be like, there's nothing wrong with that. Hey, we're going to move to Los Angeles. My husband's going to do a one-year contract with Google or whatever. I don't know where Google is. Please don't come and tell me. Google's not in Los Angeles. Just an illustration. Um, so so um, what's wrong with that? Well, it's not so much that they, that they made plans, but it's this self-sufficient certainty where we deceive ourselves and God's not even in the picture. So for example... Some of you are planners and some of you aren't. I did premarital counseling for a couple, probably 20 years ago. And they were at two ends of the spectrum. I mean, the wife was like, okay, I'm going to go to graduate school. I'm going to get this degree and then we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And the guy's like, no, no. He goes, I, I, I just feel like I, I just kind of let the spirit lead. That's what he said. I let the spirit lead. And I'm going, this is, this, is, this is not good. And so I was like, you sure you guys are, it's not right or wrong. Sometimes... It's just not compatible. It's going to be compatible, right? So they're like, no, we got this, we got this. Well, it turned out to be a real mess for them because they were, they were two extremes in terms of planning. So, but the issue here isn't planning. The issue is when we become these self-confident people that we're certain and this is the way it is. So let, let's kind of work our way through this passage. So... James is really going to say, hey, what you fail to do is to reckon on the God factor. Don't just say, I want to do this, this, and this, and this. Let's talk about what that looks like. Well, the first thing it looks like is don't make plans with a self-sufficient certainty. So he goes, come now. And when James says, come now, it's usually not good. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you should weep and howl for your sins that are coming upon you. Pardon me for a moment. Benjamin, I'll put it on your piano there. Um, so, what is a self-sufficient certainty? Well, it's kind of the idea of going, you're not in control of your future. Sometimes we use the, terms here, the term here, being presumptuous. Don't make plans with this certainty. This is what I'm going to do, and this is how it's going to happen. Because he says, after all, look at verse 14. You don't know what your life will be like. This word for knowing is a word that means to be acquainted or to acquire information. I can't acquire information about the future. I really don't know what's going to happen. And so what we need to be reminded, and, and some of, we all know, most of you probably already know this, but hello, recalculate, like, hear it again. Don't be deceived about life's brevity. So, so notice what he says in verse B, or 14B. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then whew, vanishes away. There are these, these phrases in the Bible that, that remind us of the, the transitoriness of life. You know, here today, gone tomorrow. The Bible says, as for man, his days are like grass, but the grass withers and the flower fades. And, and so there's this kind of life cycle where we, when we even use terms like, you know, you reach that crescent and then you're like, over the hill, and, and you're on your way out. And, and I think any of us who are getting a little bit on the other side of 50, a um, few years, I'll be getting there. Just kidding, right? Start to, start to go. And, and you young people, I know you've heard this, but it does, it flies by. 
And so you young parents are raising your kids and you're going, man, these days are so long. And that's the truth, the days are long. But trust me, ask anybody who's a little bit older and we'll say, but the years are short. They're flying by. I mean, in essence, think about it. You look at a gravestone. It's got a birth date and a death date and then a little dash. And that's it. My life is just a dash between two dates. And so it, it seems so long. But James says, hey, don't be deceived about life's brevity and its frailty, right? So, so pro- this is a good verse to, to memorize. Proverbs 27.1 warns, do not boast about tomorrow for you don't know what a day will bring forth. Now, notice he uses the word boast. Like it's this self-confident, self-sufficient idea that I know what I'm going to do. And this is especially hard when you're young. Because young people, you know, I got the world by the horns. I, I got this. And, and right now, you know, to follow God, well, I'll get around to that. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the last chapter says... Remember now your creator while you're still young before the the evil days come. And then he uses these interesting metaphors to describe your teeth chattering and your eyes failing and what it looks like as we get older. And so I'm like, yeah, I really need to remind myself that I could be on a roll, but, but then all of a sudden I hear the word cancer. And we've got brothers and sisters that are, are facing that right now, these, these illnesses. There are accidental deaths. Or, or Jesus could come back. And so he goes, just, just don't have this failure to remember that our lives are just so frail, so transient, so, so here today and gone tomorrow. So interestingly, though, he's now going to tell us that, that it's not just being deceived. It's actually really pride. When I forget the frailty of my life and, and, and the brevity of my life, he's going to call that pride. He says in, in verse 15, instead, you planners ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do that, this. But as it is, notice he says, you boast in your arrogance. There's pride. You're like, all they said was, we're going to go here, make a living, you know, spend a year and we're coming back. And he goes, and that's pride. Well, why is it pride? Because you didn't even factor God in. In fact, James describes this world, or John describes this world in 1 John 2, and he uses the same word. He says, all that is in this world, he goes, don't love this world, because all that is in this world, the lust of our flesh, those evil desires outside the will of God, the lust of our eyes, and then he uses this word, the boastful pride of life, or it could be translated, the boastful pride of our possessions. That's not from God, that's from the world. So, as a new Christian, I, I've, I've struggled with this. I still do a little bit because he says, instead you ought to say Lord willing. And so I've, I've, I've wondered, well, when do you do that, right? Like I had a professor, every class when I was a student years ago in Karen, he would say, Lord willing, we will have class. I will see you on Wednesday. And so I was like, well, he's my role model. So one day I was talking to my pastor and I said, I'll be right over to your house, Lord willing. And he, and he goes, Tom, he goes, I don't think you need to actually say that. You know, could you pass me the butter? Well, certainly, Lord willing, you know, <laughs> unless I die beforehand. So we're all sort of trying to figure this out. So I like Calvin said something here. He said, Paul and, and the other apostles don't always say Lord willing. What was important is they had fixed in their mind 
that they wouldn't do things without the permission of God. It's more of a mindset. Now, sometimes when I'm writing to somebody or something, like, I still will use it, Lord willing, you know, because it's sort of become a joke, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, but it's like, now don't make flippant jokes about it, but just sort of go, hold on to things, you know, loosely because things could change rapidly. Here's a good verse you might want to memorize and just kind of float around in your mind. Proverbs 16, 9 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You see, that's the opposite. That's not a pride, self-sufficient, this is what I'm going to do. It's like, hey, Lord, this is, the Bible says in Psalm 37, commit your plans to the Lord and, and, and your deeds will be established. So it's this, this new way of looking at life because really it's part of a bigger picture and that is really life is, if you're a Christian, is about God's will. It's not about my will. So James is going to close us down by saying this whole idea of self-sufficient certainty, that, that's really a sin of passivity. In verse 17, he goes, therefore, you know, based on what, what I, I sense that some of you business people are doing, he said, to know the right thing to do and not to do it, it is sin. See, when we, when we study the idea of sin, there are over 22 different words in the Bible for sin, very distinct, like transgressions, to step over the line, iniquity, to be twisted, rebellion, fall short of a standard. And, and so when you think about sin, it's not just committing sins. We call those sins of commission. Do not commit adultery. But there are sins of omission. Every kid wants to use the omission card, right? Mom and dad say, all right, everybody, settle down. Who did what? I didn't do anything. And sometimes that's your ticket to freedom because, okay, good, you didn't do anything, fine. But sometimes that's your condemnation. I didn't do anything. James says, exactly, because there are times that to do nothing, that itself is sin. So there are parables that Jesus talked about. So think about your service for the Lord, right? Well, I'm not out there getting drunk and stuff like that. But Jesus is like, well, what are you doing for me? So he told a parable. He said, a certain man, he gave different servants talents of money and said, go invest these and, and make a profit when I come back. And, you know, when, when he came back, he called each one. And the first one said, hey, I invested. I made this. I invested. The last one goes, hey, I was afraid. So I didn't do anything. I just hid it in the ground. And Jesus goes, you wicked servant. So, so to be a Christian and not serve the Lord well, I wasn't out there doing anything bad. I didn't do anything. And Jesus got exactly. Because I wanted you to serve me. I wanted you to get into your church and get involved and do things for Christ. So that was one example of sins of omission. Another one that's striking, maybe you never thought about this one. Remember the story of the sheep and the goats? Matthew 25, when the Lord returns and he separates the sheep and the goats. And to the goats, the unbelievers, he says, depart from me into everlasting fire. And they go, what for? He goes, well, when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was sick, you didn't help me. You didn't give me anything to drink. You didn't care for me. So, so to call myself a Christian and to not do anything, to not help the poor, to not serve the Lord is, is, is a sin of omission. Even when it comes to giving, right? Benjamin said, stretch out your hand in prayer. What if Jesus said, how about if next week we stretch out our hand back to your wallet? You go, now wait a minute right? Not because we're trying to get your money, but if you don't give and you're a Christian, 
That's a sin of omission. I don't want to do anything. Right, but, but our, our stuff belongs to God. And the Bible says, honor the Lord. Give and it will be given to you. So you're like, okay, I, I guess it's really more of an a- attitude and a mindset. Sure it is. And so both of these things, what they have in common is self-sufficient, self-inflated. So I'm either thinking too highly of myself or I'm thinking, I got this, I don't need God. So a couple things to think about as we wind down and then we'll pray is I think it would be good for all of us to try to retire from being a judge. You know, being a judge is a good gig, right? Because you're a judge for life and then you get really good support after that. But if you and I have sort of joined God as an inappropriate judge, it's time to turn in the gavel and just go, you know what, Lord, I'm really sorry. I've been self-inflated. Whenever I'm trying to figure out and you know, speaking against other people and judging them, I want to stop doing that. I, I'm going to retire. And, and really, if I'm doing that, it, 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 the Lord said to me, hey, Tom, when you do that, what, what that is, is, is is a form of a self-inflated inflated importance. You're thinking too much about yourself and, 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 and thinking too highly of yourself. So maybe there are other self-inflated attitudes and activities that, that the Lord's gone, you know, this, this is rooted in pride. It's really interesting that the passage that we saw last week ended this way. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. If I'm too preoccupied with what everybody else is doing, that's a self-inflated attitude. And so let's pray for one another that we won't go home and say, I hope you heard what the pastor said. But then this other thing about being self-sufficient, as you and I consider life's brevity, what, what might need to change, you know, first of all, in your attitude toward life, like think about your screensaver. Now, sometimes it's, it's funny how electronics are always changing. Well, sometimes I'll use the phrase screensaver and young people are like, what's that, right? Well, we used to have on our computers, so it didn't burn out. Something would come across the screen, it would move, right? And we called that your screensaver. And so some people would have a verse or something to to remind them. So how often does the idea of the will of God come across your thoughts, right? Like this is hardcore, fundamental Christianity 101. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you don't think deeply and often about the will of God, you might want to check on something. Jesus said one day, Matthew 7, 21, many people will say, Lord, Lord, I know you. And he goes, not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of my father. Now that verse is not intended to scare the, the Christian who's like, oh, I he said, you didn't care about the will of the father. All you did, depart from me, you who practice wickedness. So when I become a Christian, Jesus is like, Tom, you are forgiven. You are my child. I have made you a a saint in Christ. You're set apart to serve me now. Now what I want you to do is present yourself to me and on a regular basis learn how to do my will. Romans 12 says, present your body to God and then be transformed so that we can prove what the will of God is. So when you're making your plans about getting married or moving or getting a job or what you're going to do with your money or what you're going to buy or not buy, are you thinking about, Father, is this your will? Is this pleasing to you? Or does that not even come into your, your mind? 
In Ephesians 5, Paul says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So, so as a Christian, you're like, well, you know, it's good for me to have these like biannual checkups on the will of God. It shouldn't be biannual. How about daily? And you're like, well, that's kind of legalistic. Like, I need to think about God's will daily. Where do you get that from? Thanks for asking. Matthew 6, Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our biannual bread. Well, you're like, yeah, but that's, you're supposed to ask him daily for your needs. Well, keep praying. And let your will be done on earth. Novel thought if we added the phrase, on earth, in my life. Right? So, on a regular basis, as a forgiven follower of Christ, it's biblical, it's Christ-like to say, okay, Father, as, as, as this day goes forth, help me to be conscious to do your will. And when I come to that impasse where my will and your will conflict, give me the strength to go with your will. Jesus called that taking up my cross daily, dying to myself. You're like, yeah, well, these people are inconvenient. They're, I, I, got, I got to do my thing. And Jesus is like, I'm not saying don't take care of yourself, but as a Christian, your, your life is to be lived for me. And, and please don't think, oh, if only I was like Pastor Tom. He jumps out of bed every morning and goes, Father, your will be done. And then the angels start to sing and a halo glows around me. I would like to think that, but you can ask Tammy. That's not what happens. So, so we're all in this together and we're going, God, help me to just think about, all right, is, is your will important to me? Am I, am I living my life for you? I like Psalm 39. The psalmist did something pretty interesting. He goes, as he thought about sinning with his speech and the brevity of life, he goes, Psalm 39.1, I said in my heart, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. And I was mute and silent, but then I refrained from doing any good. Then I spoke with my tongue. Now listen to what he said. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. My days are like hand breaths. My life is nothing in your sight. We just walk about like a phantom. We make an uproar for nothing. We store up money. and We don't even know who's going to gather it. And Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. So deliver me from transgressions. You know, that's kind of cool. Lord, remind me that my life is short. So help me to live it for you. But lastly, and this one I think is one we all need to check on. There we go. Thank you. Is doing God's will important to you? And are you ready to leave this world and meet the Lord? I want to close with a parable that most of you already know, but it's good to be reminded. At any time, Jesus could come back. Right? And as a Christian, even as a Christian, there's no condemnation. So if you're a believer, you never need to fear that Jesus is going to expel you from his kingdom. You weren't good enough. You committed suicide. You did something naughty. We are pardoned completely. But as a believer, if the Lord comes back and you're not living for him, it's quite possible to have a very disappointing encounter. 1 John chapter 2 says, Abide in Christ. Trust and obey him so that when he returns, brethren... You won't shrink away in shame at his coming. So as a Christian, because Jesus could come back at any time, I should be, Lord, help me to be ready for you. Help me to be living my life for you. <clears throat> but particularly, I want to address those of you who might not be Christians yet. 
I can tell you this, there are a whole lot of people right now, if they could come out of hell, they would say, don't do what I did. I planned to get saved, just not then. I figured I would do it later. And the problem with that is that they made this very foolish miscalculation, and that is, we'll all die slowly with a lot of time to think about it and ask God's forgiveness and change. Many people die instantly, car accidents, heart attacks. So Jesus told a parable about a man who was, his business was, was blessed. And so he said, the land of a rich man, Luke 12, was very productive. And he began to reason in himself, what am I going to do? I've got so much crops. I'm going to build bigger barns, store all my money, right? And then I will say to my soul, Lord, you have, or, or soul, you have much goods laid up, ready? For many years, take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then Jesus brings the hammer down. But God said to him, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Wow. So is the man who just stores up stuff for himself and is not rich towards God. So I would really urge you, if you've been thinking about you know, one of these days I'll become a Christian. I got a good day for you now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. But then as I think about this, I think too about the whole concept of retirement, right? I think as Christians living in an affluent society, I want you to think through retirement planning. What, what do we actually mean by retirement? If retirement looks like, man, I can't wait till we live in Florida, and I play shuffleboard and golf all day long, and just fish and, and play cards and chill. I'm going, please help me to find that in the Bible. I mean, I'm all for retirement when, when you don't have to work anymore to bring in an income. But I don't think we should ever think of retirement as this time where, you know, it's just for me. Now it's my turn to indulge. The Bible says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord for then they rest from their labors. So let's plan for a retirement. I'll come visit you in Florida, play golf once, right? But if you're going to do that all the time, then you go, wow, that doesn't sound like a Christ-centered perspective on eternity, on my finances, on my future, and what I could do for Christ. So let's close together and ask God, Lord, help me to avoid self-inflated activities and, and not to deceive myself by having these self-diseased or self deceived plans that don't include you. Father, thank you for your words. It's, it's always a, a, a catch-22 when we study the word because it comforts us, but sometimes it cuts us. It's alive and powerful. So, Lord, may we respond. Thank you that Jesus is always waiting to wash us again with his precious blood. Change our hearts, Lord. Help us to treat others with gentleness and love. Help us to encourage one another and thank you, Lord. Maybe you're going to come today. So if there are attitudes or actions that we need to make before you come, help us to deal with that today. If there's anyone here that's not saved and they know it and they've been waiting, may today be the day that they surrender and believe in Christ and begin to follow him. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. Help us to disciple our children and one another with the truths of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.